Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4? If uh, you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to use one of the blue Bibles under the chairs, you can find Acts 4 on page 773. We're in our series on the New Testament book of Acts, and it begins with Jesus returning to the Father's side in heaven. But our sermon graphic depicts that Jesus is still active now through his people. We are continuing to do what he began while he worked, uh, walked on this earth. He's not physically present, though, any longer in the director's chair, but he's spiritually as his people are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the director not just of the church, not just of gospel ministry, but of all of history. In uh, Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter healed a lame man crippled from birth. He preached a sermon to explain that healing, and thousands more people placed their faith in Jesus Christ at the beginning of Acts 4. The healing and the saving are both part of the overflow of resurrection power. They're not different things. Healing, uh, Peter calls times of refreshing. They're temporary. They're in the here and now. Resurrection is the ultimate promise on the last day, and Peter calls that the restoration of all things. Healing and saving go together. Uh, Jesus' ministry demonstrated that. And in fact, the Greek word for to save can also be translated to heal. Well, Peter and John get thrown in prison. Uh, They're threatened not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus, and then they're released. We'll pick up in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. Listen carefully. These are God's words. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we want to see another Acts 4 and another Acts 2 here at Grace Redeemer Church. Fill us and this place with the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we'll talk about the church's crisis. And we'll see that there's uh, a pattern between Acts 1 and 2 and here in Acts chapter 4. Okay, Um, Acts 1 begins with the disruption in the lives of followers of Christ. The disruption is this. He's gone. He's left them. They're alone. Well, what did they do? Chapter 1, verse 14. 
They all join together constantly in prayer. Then chapter 2, Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in power. He's poured out all of the disciples, represented by wind and fire. And the result is that the disciples are empowered by that Holy Spirit to proclaim the Word of God, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to the outside world. 3,000 men are saved. In that day, the census only counted the males. Well, in last week's passage, at the beginning of chapter 4, there was another disruption. Thousands of people more are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and the authorities don't like it, so they throw the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John in prison and threaten them. Party's over. What do they do now? Well, uh, this marks the beginning of persecution against the church. And so when Peter and John get out of prison and they join back with the believers, what do they do? No surprise, verse 24, they raise their voices together in prayer to God, and then the Spirit filled them, not represented by wind and fire this time, but by a shaking of the place where they were meeting, which empowers these disciples by the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ to the outside world. There's a pattern here, and it's not limited to Acts. It's not limited to the early church. Disruption, whether it's persecution or suffering or some kind of obstacle in your life or death itself, won't go away because they're all consequences of sin. They won't go away completely until Jesus comes back at the end of history and finishes his work of restoring all things. The question then becomes, not can we avoid it, but will disruption and crisis become a world-changing opportunity or... Will disruption in our lives cause faith to fade, cause strength and vitality to ebb, cause hope to die out? Here's the question I want you to consider. When you're in crisis, how do you react? Do you withdraw or do you flee to people, for example? If withdrawal, does it look like escape into fantasy or wallowing in self-pity or hiding under the covers? If fleeing... Does it become codependency, sucking the life out of your friends, uh, looking to a loved one or a family member for um, fulfillment and meaning and and identity, thinking that this person will make you happy, this relationship will fulfill you? When you're in crisis, do you self-medicate by overeating or do you lose your appetite? In crisis, do you blame other people, point the finger, or do you condemn yourself for letting it happen as if it were in your control. When life is disrupted, this is the toughest for New York City dwellers like us or region dwellers like us. When life is disrupted, do you pull up your bootstraps? Do you strategize a solution? Do you work harder? Or do you stop and trust and pray? Here's what the church did in Acts 1 and Acts 4, and it's hard to argue with the results. That leads us, secondly, to the church's prayer. First, I want to point out something similar in two verses, Acts 1, Acts 4, that we can't miss. It's a word that's translated in our English as together, but it doesn't do justice to the strength of, of this word. One theological dictionary for this Greek word says, this word denotes the inner unity of a group of people engaged in an externally similar action. It's not just that they were in one place altogether. It's not just that they were doing the same thing 
um, kind of minding their own business, they happen to be uh, praying in that place. It, it's that their hearts and minds were united. They were rowing in the same direction. Uh, they, they had the same purpose, the same end goal in mind, and there was something incredibly unifying and strong about that picture of the church praying together. Individual prayer is important to our lives of faith, absolutely. But if you, if you never gather with the rest of God's people in concerted, intentional, deliberate prayer, something is seriously lacking in our growth opportunities, our maturing opportunities. And yes, by the way, Kingdom Prayer is this Tuesday, 7.30 p.m., meeting room behind you. It's not just a sales pitch. It's something integral that Scripture, and in particular, Acts 1 and Acts 4, show us unleashes power. We're going to get to that uh, as we go along. In Kingdom Prayer, 10 a.m., every Sunday between services during adult Christian ed. Well, look, if, if I were in Acts chapter 4, I'd be praying as well, fervently. But my prayer, um, having just gotten out of prison, threats on my life, spies probably watching my every move, my prayer would be a lot different than I read in Acts chapter 4. My prayer would go like this. God, what is going on? You, you know, you asked me to do this. I'm obeying, and this is what I get. Where are your angels clearing the path for gospel ministry? Isn't this what you want me to do? Why are there hindrances? Thank you, by the way, for getting me out of prison. Now keep me out and show me where I can minister because obviously I can't stay here. Um, it's a danger to my life, my family. I'm no good to you dead or in prison. Um, when you answer that prayer, maybe I can resume gospel ministry. That, that whiny, self-centered prayer isn't going to change the world, unfortunately. And thankfully, that's not what we see in Acts chapter 4. This is what the church prays. They first emphasize God's sovereignty. He, he, he is almighty, and they see him in three parts. As the God of creation, verse 24, as the God of revelation, 25 and 26, as the God of history, uh, 27 and 28. You made all things, God of creation. You spoke through the Holy Spirit in your servant David, quoting Psalm 2, and you decided. He's active in the affairs of history, even in the circumstances. And yes, even the most shocking circumstance in history the death of your own son, God, that even serves your grand purposes. He's that sovereign, that almighty, God of creation, God of revelation, God of history. And, and quoting Psalm 2 is interesting, verses 25 to 26. The rulers of the earth are opposing God and his anointed one. His anointed one is Messiah. That's, that's what it means. Just like David said. But I think there's a lot more going on in this quote than one of the Christians assembled in the prayer meeting kind of flipping through his or her Bible saying, you know, I know there's a verse here somewhere that I, I, it, this reminds me of, oh, yeah, it's Psalm 2. Let me read it. I think there's something more significant going on than, hey, this looks familiar. And let me try this on for size. Have you ever seen a toddler fall down? Let's say at the playground. There's a moment frozen in time where there's no reaction except for immediate eye contact with mommy and daddy because this child is basically looking for some sort of feedback, and unbeknownst to them, the look goes like this. Mother, how shall I interpret this unpleasant life experience? And let's say 
For the sake of illustration, mommy says, my baby, are you okay? Immediately, the kid starts wailing because the world is ended. You know, it's as if mom has said, you are seriously injured. This is really bad, and I might lose my firstborn son on the playground. Weeping and wailing ensue. Let's say dad has a different reaction. He's at the playground with the little guy, okay? And dad says, you're okay. There's no blood, no bones sticking out. Let's do it again. And it's not always the case. They're different personalities, but sometimes the little guy says, oh, I'm okay. All righty, let's do it again. Here, by quoting Psalm 2, it's as if the disciples are assuring themselves of something in, a, in the time of disruption, in uncertainty. This is what God said would happen, right? Rulers of the earth standing up against his anointed one, Christ, and those who are following him. Is it okay? Are we doomed? They didn't have that doubt, though, because they knew the rest of Psalm 2. And I, I, I quoted it last week, but especially verse 4 says this in Psalm 2, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Oh, dad's laughing. We're not going to die. And if we do die, he does that resurrection thing and fixes everything anyway. So it's all good. Let's do it again. You see that they're using scripture as an anchor point, as a reference. Is it okay? Are are the spiritual police going to be after us? Should, Should we keep going? Yes, it's okay. The one enthroned in heaven is laughing, scoffing at those who would oppose him. Let's do it again. It's a confidence builder. And And here's a lesson for us. All of us fall into one of these two categories. Either we we say, I I, want to learn how to pray, because I don't know how to, or I know how, but I really need to learn how to pray more effectively, right? More fervently, with greater faith. And, And regardless of what bucket you fall into, this is an important lesson for us to learn. In praying, use Scripture. You might say, I don't know any scripture. Well, look in your email six days a week if you're on a Lenten devotional, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14 through 19, we're up, up to in this um, daily devotional. We're about two-thirds of the way through Lent. I hope this sounds familiar to some of you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, right? We're up to 19. We're going to add two more verses by the time Lent ends. Memorize scripture, it's, it's such a lost spiritual discipline. I'm pretty confident because these early Christians were so steeped in their scriptures. At that time, they only had the Old Testament. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in, in, in guesstimating that somebody didn't say, you know what, I'm, let me pull up my concordance. <laughs> let, let me do a search, you know, a digital search to find this idea, find a verse that kind of applies to, no, Psalm 2. Why? Because it was memorized. If it's in your mind and heart, it's readily available to you to draw on when you need it. And and maybe in addition to memorizing, when you're reading Scripture, the lesson is not to think of Bible reading and prayer as separate, but pray through what you're reading. Claim it. God, you say right here that this is your promise. This is the way you act. This is who you are. I'm going to claim it. I'm going to affirm it back to you, God. That's what the... The, the, the disciples of Christ are doing here by quoting Psalm 2. Otherwise, when life gets disrupted, when there's a roadblock in the way, if you have no solid reference point, 
you will react like the three-year-old who thinks that falling on the playground and scraping his or her knee is the end of the world. God is not worried. God applies resurrection power. Let's do it again. So these Christians spend five verses affirming who God is and how he's acted in history, and only then do they spend two more verses asking him for things. Um, It's a 70 to 30 ratio. And ours, if we're honest, mine is, typically more like 1 to 99, you know? And and it, it goes sort of like, you're good, now gimme. Now gimme, 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 right? Uh, cursory, like this is who you are, God, now, now, now you're supposed to do things for me. Whereas these disciples are saying, you're, you're good, you've acted, I'm quoting scripture, I'm claiming promises, 70% of the prayer, and then they finally get to give us this day our daily bread. It's like the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, he doesn't need to be told where he is. We do though, hallowed be thy name sacred, you're holy, you're set apart from everyone else, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are we telling God anything he doesn't know? Absolutely not. And only then, when we are oriented properly towards the God who is sovereign and loving towards us, do we say, give us this day our daily bread and ask him for things. Well, verse 29, they get to their request, not for relief, not for safety, not for a life free from persecution. It's what I would default to, you know. I have a cold, God, so would you free me from that cold? It becomes, you know, the most important thing in my life. No, God, God has far more important things than to address my cold right now, okay? Not saying it's, it's irrelevant to pray for health, but we just don't see that kind of prayer in Scripture. Circumstantial prayer, because the disciples are aiming at something far bigger than the little things of life. Does God care? Absolutely. But we need to be praying for these cosmic things that God is up to. And the first thing they say is, now, Lord, consider their threats. These people who are rising up against you, Lord, consider their threats. God, did you notice they are insulting your son? And and when they insult me because of your son, that's, that's aiming at you. They're telling us to stop doing what you've asked us to do. And again, imagine, um, let's say, a six-year-old now telling his daddy, Daddy, that high school kid just told me he's going to beat me up. The six-year-old isn't going to take matters into his own hands. The six-year-old's not even asking his father to do anything specific. What he's doing is he's pointing out something that has happened. He's trusting that Daddy is going to hold him safe and deal with the threat. Lord, consider their threats. When a crisis hits, how do you respond? Do you take matters into your own hands? Do you feel bitterness in your heart? Do you plot vengeance against your enemies? Do you, do you, do you determine to set right every wrong as sort of the moral vigilante? Talk about a dog-eat-dog world. That will consume you if you play that game And the only way to escape that game is to do what the Apostle Peter describes Jesus doing in 1 Peter chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't play that game. He didn't take vengeance into his own hands. He demonstrated ultimate humility and weakness. 
so that real power might come through resurrection. The church here is entrusting God with the threat of persecution. And I think there's a, there's a note of humility running through this attitude. Uh, you know, it's almost like the, the church is saying, we don't know how to deal with this, God, but you do. We're, we're just pointing out something to you. Um, I, I get the sense that these believers are saying to God, Lord, do you see that sniper up there? You've asked us to run across the field and take up a position. Just, just want to make sure you notice that guy, right? Okay, good. I'm running. <laughs> Let's do it again. And trusting God, consider their threats. Whatever you choose to do, Lord, you're the sovereign one over creation um, and uh, revelation and history. Now I'm just going to do what you ask me to do. And the heart of their prayers is at the end of verse 29. Uh, it's their second request. And they ask for boldness uh, to speak the word of God. Any surprise, this is what the, the early church is asking for. We've, we've said this over and over in the first four chapters in Acts, that uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit doesn't lead to a supernatural magic show. Sometimes signs and wonders are there, but uh, primarily the filling of the Spirit leads to the speaking of God's Word, which is all about the risen Savior, Jesus. They're asking for that boldness. And sure enough, the Spirit fills them. Um, and they go right into asking God to continue to bring these foretastes of what Jesus will bring about on the last day, these times of refreshing, healing. Lord, show us now, strengthen our faith in what you are going to do at the last day when body, mind, and soul are made new. Give us foretastes, little down payments. Um, and the signs and wonders, again, in great contrast to what I know my heart would pray, tinged with sin, um, they're different than what I would ask for. You know, my, my, my holy prayer would go more like this, Lord, um, consider their threats and let the earth swallow up ISIS right now and let Ebola pick and choose its victims and uh, pick on the tyrants and the child molesters and the human traffickers of this world so that we would be rid of these people, God. All for your glory, of course. It's the way my sinful heart would go. What, what are they asking for signs and wonders for? Not for vengeance, not for John judgment, for healing, for, for saving, for resurrection power to come upon the worst that the world has to offer, that they might see truth and respond with, uh, to the love of Christ with an overflow of love themselves. It, do we ever pray that for ISIS? Ouch. Um, this is what the early church is asking for, resurrection power. What Ben prayed was, was excellent, by the way. <laughs> I'm not uh, picking on Ben's prayer. Um, last thought on prayer here. Those of you um, who are attuned to grammar, maybe like me because you had uh, Catholic nuns growing up and, and they drilled it into you, but you might notice that the, the prayer requests are actually in the command tense, the hortatory tense. Um, they're not saying, would you please, if it, if it be your will, God, might you consider, they say, Lord, consider, enable, stretch out your hand to heal and perform. It might sound insolent. If we're, you know, who, who are you to tell God what to do in your life? 
what they're doing is claiming the promises of God. They're so attuned to the heart of God because they're steeped in the scriptures that they're asking for what is according to the heart of God. God, give me boldness to speak your word. Do you think that is God's will for you? I guarantee you it is. So claim it boldly. Ask for it. Don't, don't say, Lord, uh, you know, maybe you could give me an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody if, if, you're, too, if you're not too busy. You know, this is what God's about. Grant your servants boldness. If you're praying according to Scripture, um, ask anything according to my will, and the Father will hear you, Jesus says. Well, what's the Spirit's response lastly? Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a clear yes answer. You will have what you've asked for. Remember the pattern of Acts so far, okay? Acts 1, disruption to life because Jesus is gone. The disciples pray together, constantly. The Holy Spirit is poured out. Thousands come to faith in Christ. Acts chapter 4, disruption to life. Persecution begins. It's going to continue throughout the whole chapter, uh, throughout the whole book. It's continuing today. The disciples pray together. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The place is shaken. And gospel proclamation continues. And if we kept reading the chapters to continue would show us that this world-changing phenomenon is only increasing. Don't we want to see Acts 1 and 2 turn into Acts 4, turn into GRC in the year 2015? Otherwise, why are we here? Nice spiritual club where we can feel good, sing some songs, um, you know, kind of belong to some community? Is, is that all we're about? Or, or, or do we want to see nothing less than God shake GRC and then through us see GRC shake Bergen County and the ends of the earth? I'm afraid all too often our prayers are far too small. That's why we call these prayer meetings kingdom prayer, with a capital K, not me and my own little needs prayer, kingdom prayer, what God is up to throughout all of history and what he will finish on the last day. That's called revival. We need to pray for it. A little history lesson. October 1857, the stock market crashed. That led to a, a bank run in New York City um, and a financial collapse of the whole system. Uh, the, the bank run spread to Boston, and, and there was a ripple effect. Uh, a disruption, if there ever was one, in that, in that day, just like in Acts 1 and Acts 4. Even journalists wrote, secular journalists wrote that um, the crash was divine judgment upon the social sins of uh, the time. A guy named Jeremiah Lanfear uh, had recently started missionary work in downtown Manhattan, about five minutes' walk from Wall Street, and uh, he had a simple idea. I want to start inviting some businessmen out during their lunch hour to pray. September 1857, about a month before the crash. He uh, did some publicity, sat there half an hour, nobody showed up. Finally, six people showed up, men, um, working men down in, in, in Manhattan in the financial district, and uh, they prayed for the rest of the half hour, exactly on the dot, 12 to 1. The next week, about 20 guys showed. In early October, over 30 came and prayed. And then the market crashed. And you might think, Jeremiah Lanfear thought, uh-oh, what do I do now? 
Do you know, sometimes when our idols are destroyed, when the rug is pulled out from under us, it is the most gracious and loving thing God could ever do to say, no, 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 don't look at that. That can't satisfy you. Look at me. All of my promises are, are real and yours in Christ. Did God perhaps pull the rug out from under New York City in its growing prosperity and worldliness and booming population? Well, by springtime, uh, as other prayer meetings popped up all around the city because these places were filled to capacity and businesses were closing from 12 to 1 because who would come by a sandwich? They were all praying. By the springtime, 10,000 men were praying throughout the city of New York on a daily basis. And this spread from city to city across the country and eventually spread across the pond uh, to uh, um, the United Kingdom. Men were not just praying, they were repenting. They were tearfully confessing sin to one another, turning away from a life chasing after sin and death and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Revival was spreading throughout the land. New York City and much of the U.S. was shaken and filled with the Holy Spirit. Around the same time, over in London, a 19-year-old kid named Charles Spurgeon started preaching in Park, uh, New, uh, New Park Street Chapel, and revival broke out shortly after. People would come and say, what, what, where does the power for your preaching come from? And one Sunday, a visitor asked him that question, and he brought him during the services on a Sunday morning down into the bowels of New Park Street Chapel, opened the door, and showed the guy 300 people praying while the service had begun upstairs. And Spurgeon said, this is our power plant. This is the secret, if there ever is one. And I did a little math out of curiosity. They had 10,000 people coming on a Sunday, 300 praying. We have about 500 coming on a Sunday. That means 3%. We need 15 people praying during our services. I wonder if we would dare to doubt what God would miraculously do in unleashing the forces of heaven upon GRC if even five of us committed to praying during the services. Even out of curiosity as to what God might do as a result. I want to be careful. I'm not saying that what Spurgeon had going on at the, the, the chapel is a formula, and, you know, look, all churches need to do is have 3% of people praying during the services, and things will happen. Aren't you curious, though? When we look at Acts 1, what was the key to unleash the Holy Spirit? Praying together constantly. Yes, Jesus promised the Spirit would come, but the human instrument that they engaged in was prayer together. In Acts chapter 4, crisis hits. How do they respond? They pray together. Spurgeon, what, what unleashes this, this power of his preaching? He, he was an unimpressive man, the power of, of prayer. Um, they, they call this revival in New York City the, um, um, the prayer meeting revival because it wasn't Jeremiah Lanfear who did much except organize a little prayer meeting and it spread like wildfire. Would even five of you consider praying every week during the services? I, I, w I won't even fault you if you say, you know, I can't make it to the service, but I'm going to be praying while you preach, Peter. Um, 
session members can tell me if I need to pull that back later. But um, people so often want to see more programs for the kids and evangelistic events for reaching the community and after-school tutoring to make an impact in our neighborhoods. And all that's good stuff. We want to consider it. We want to strategize and, and do our best to reach out. But if we want to see God shake GRC and then see GRC shake Bergen County to the ends of the earth, Acts 1 and Acts 4 and the documented history of every revival that has come upon any land would tell us to do this simple thing. Pray together, continuously, according to Scripture, acknowledging God to be sovereign over all the nations, unaffected by the rulers of the earth rising up in opposition, and He will come in power. Let me close with this. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. There's one place, as far as I know, in the Bible where God says, test me. And the context of Malachi chapter 3 was in the the bringing of tithes to the Lord, offerings that represented a tenth of one's income or one's harvest in an agrarian society. And this is what God says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I'm confident that God would extend that divine dare test me to our prayer lives. Part of that is because very often in in this neck of the woods, in in the New York metro area, time very often is more valuable than money. Would you give God your time, your priority in prayer? Would, Would you humble yourself enough to recognize that what you most want in life, you cannot work hard enough to provide for yourself, but God can. And His riches, his presence, his power are accessed through faith, through a spirit-filled life, through a prayerful posture. And the heavenly Father will answer with the shaking of our world, pouring out so much blessing, so much world change that our minds will be unable to comprehend it. Let's test God because we have permission. Let's pray. Wonder-working God, open the heavens. We want to see you. You've revealed yourself through your word, by your spirit, ultimately through your son, Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to proclaim him to the nations. We want your power to be unleashed through us. Bring us to our knees, Lord. Convict us of our laziness and prayer. I start with myself and cause me and cause us to long for you to open the heavens and pour out so much blessing that we will not have room enough for it. We will not have the words to describe the reality before us. And we will left, be left with only one appropriate response, worship. We worship you this day and ask you to do this work in and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.